Turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. And our text this evening is brief, but it is very dense. Um, you know, it's kind of like biting into a fruitcake. Uh, it's not exactly what you expect sometimes when you bite into it. Um, this text is very, very theologically dense. There's a lot in here to unpack. And so we're going to be pretty much staying here within these three verses. I'll refer to some other texts as we go along. But to uh, just provide some context for these few verses, um, Math, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our text this evening will be verses 16 through 18. And these verses fall within a larger body of 2 Corinthians that has been called Paul's manifesto of ministry. Uh, this portion of scripture is the place where Paul is declaring the principles, the characteristics, and the motivations of his ministry of the gospel as an apostle of Christ. Now, these principles are simply the outworking of the gospel. And as we're going to see, the gospel was not something that Paul just preached. The gospel was the undergirding, the support, and the uh, motivation for everything that he did. And so these principles that Paul is giving in this section of his manifesto have to do with the gospel. And since it is the gospel, these principles are not simply restricted to Paul's first century apostolic ministry. And I might also add, they do not only apply to present day pastors or evangelists or those that we would say are in full-time Christian ministry. These principles of the gospel have application in the life of every believer. And so I'd like for us to look into these verses. I want you to notice that in verses 16 through 18, Paul is describing a series of stark contrasts that he has experienced and that all Christians will experience as they follow and serve Christ. Please follow along, beginning in verse 16. Paul says this, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, this evening we're thankful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world, that he is the apostle and high priest of our faith, and that as you have uh, called us and saved us, and you're in the process of sanctifying us and bringing us to glory, we pray that you would help us tonight not to lose heart in our Christian lives. Uh, there's a lot in our world today that would discourage us. And yet, our hope is not in what we can see around us, but in the eternal realities that we have personally experienced 
through the salvation of Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to understand and apply these principles uh, of the gospel in our lives and that we would keep on keeping on in our fellowship, our discipleship, in our service, in our faithfulness for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us grow discouraged sometimes. Uh, ministry is hard. Life is hard. And sometimes as Christians, uh, the pressures build up, the stresses uh, increase, and at times we simply want to lay down and die. We simply want to throw in the towel and quit. Do you think Paul ever wanted to quit? Well, I think we don't need to even answer that question. We can see right here that obviously there were times in even the Apostle Paul's life that he faced that temptation of discouragement, wanting to quit. And yet Paul is here informing us that there are some truths of the gospel that empower and equip him to keep on keeping on even when things are hard. Now, the important thing we need to recognize here is that all of us, like Paul, are followers and servants of Christ. This is the commonality that we would share with what we would say, uh, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul is just way beyond us. Uh, there's not much in his life that uh, we can really uh, take as applying to us. He was on a level above but the, the truth is that Paul himself, in his writings, presents himself as an example to the believers. That Paul presents himself as one who was saved out of due time, as he puts it, so that he could be an example to those that afterward would become followers of Christ. And so these experiences that Paul faced and these truths that Paul uh, inculcated and used in his life from the gospel message that he preached have direct application to us as well. Notice in verse 16, he says, For which cause we faint not. Now that word faint has the idea of giving up, of losing heart, of growing discouraged in our Christian life. And Paul says, For which cause we faint not. Well, what cause? Well, remember in this manifesto of ministry, uh, Paul has been describing the principles that drive his ministry. But in fact, Paul here is actually picking up a thought that he has already stated earlier in this chapter. Look up at chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. So what is this ministry? Well, we have to go back into chapter 3, and you recall that Paul is there describing his ministry of the new covenant, that Jesus Christ came uh, bringing a new covenant message from God, one that superseded the old covenant revelation of the law through Moses. And here he's describing the fact that this ministry which, which was entrusted to him is a ministry of glory that far exceeds the word of the law. Now, he does not by any means downplay or downgrade the importance of the law. But his point is that the new covenant ministry is one that far exceeds the old covenant ministry in its glory. And so all of us are servants and followers of Christ 
just as the Apostle Paul was. And in, in light of this majestic and glorious ministry, Paul states his intention not to give up, not to grow discouraged. And so he gets in verse 16 and he says, For which cause we faint not. Now as he goes down through these verses, he's going to provide us with three summary reasons of why he does not give up. Why he does not lose heart. And these are things that we can directly uh, apply in our own lives as we consider our life and our service and our discipleship and our ministry for Christ, whatever that may be. All Christians are servants of Christ, disciples of Christ. We can compare the message of Christ that he gave in Matthew chapter 11 Verses 28 through 30, very familiar verses. You remember what those said? Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that yoke that Christ is describing there is the yoke of discipleship. There is a yoke, a burden that that we properly need to carry as we follow and serve Christ in this life. And so how can we keep on keeping on? How can we keep from losing heart and giving up? And Paul here gives us three reasons. I want you to notice this. Just to summarize here, where there are three sets of contrasts, one in each of these verses, Notice first in verse 16, there's the contrast between what I would describe as dissolution and renewal. Uh, in other words, he's talking here about a process of decay and a process of renewing. Look at verse 17, we see a different contrast here. We see the contrast between affliction and glory. And then in verse 18, again, we see a contrast between things that are seen and things that are unseen. Now these three contrasts provide for us three reasons that we must never lose heart in our life and service for the Lord. Notice first of all in verse 16, he says here, reminds us that we should not lose heart because our inner man is being renewed. He says here, Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now the interesting thing about these contrasts that we see in these verses is that they're presented in the form of a paradox. They're, they're things that seem not to go together. They're things that seem to be, in some sense, contradictory. So how can we be experiencing dissolution and renewal at the same time? And yet this is the point that Paul is making. It is because of this contrast, because of this paradox, that we should not give up or lose heart in our Christian life. Now, he, he begins by talking about the first part of this paradox, which is the progressive decay of our outer man. And this decay or dissolution is an inescapable reality for us as Christians. 
This is not the experience of some Christians or of some people, but this is something that all of us as Christians, as we follow and serve Christ, will experience. That we will experience this progressive decay of the outer man. Now, we just have to look back into chapter 4 a little earlier. We can see how Paul has already described the reality of his sufferings for the gospel. Look at verse 7. He talks about having this treasure. This treasure is the gospel message that's been entrusted to him. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That is, in a vessel of clay. Now, this is a fragile, uh, a perishable vessel, something that is weak, easily broken. But Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And so as Paul proclaims this gospel message to his generation, he experiences the power of God at work through him, even though he is a weak and decaying vessel. Now, what were these sufferings? He goes on in verses 8 and following. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So this is this contrast between our dissolution and our renewal. So this word, uh, the outward man that Paul is describing here, uh, obviously it, it has in some form or fashion a reference to our physical body, to our outward, visible, human flesh. Uh, I can remember when I got to about age 45, and I never had to wear glasses in my younger years. Um, and I can remember as I was... Uh, preaching regularly that I found that I had to keep holding my Bible farther and farther away as I was in the pulpit just to read the text. And so finally I said, okay, I've got to do something about this. So we went to the eye doctor and the eye doctor said, yeah, yeah, your eyes are changing. Uh, This is, uh, you know, uh, uh, age is creeping up on you. Your, Your eyes are changing. You need a prescription. So now I have eyeglasses. I have bifocals. This allows me to see you. It allows me to see my my Bible. But I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. And it is certainly true that our bodies are growing old. We are uh, slowly wearing out as uh, as human beings. Um, uh, As we age, we experience sicknesses or diseases or conditions, progressive uh, conditions as our bodies begin to age and wear out. And we understand that ultimately a day will come when we will be with the Lord. But I'd like to suggest to you that when Paul says that our outward man is perishing, he's not simply referring to this a very human process of aging and death. He's, he's talking about something more. He's talking about something that has application to us because we are followers of Christ. Don't unbelievers also get bifocals? Don't they also get diseases and age and die? And the answer is obviously yes. 
So what Paul is talking about here is that we are experiencing, uh, just as Paul did, the physical sufferings, yes, but also the emotional pressures and the spiritual conflict that comes as we follow and proclaim Christ to this world around us. And it is, the, it is this affliction, this suffering that we experience, which is open, it's outward, it is visible before the world. We can call this our outward man, our life visibly lived before the world in which we experience as we follow Christ, afflictions, sufferings, persecutions, difficulties, trials, tests that come to us because we are following Christ as his disciple. So the word perishing here, literally it means to corrupt, to destroy, or to wear out. And so the idea here is that because we are Christians who are following Christ, we are experiencing things that the world, the watching world, is looking at in us and causes us to be an object of derision, of uh, shame, of mocking, because of our testimony for Christ. And so as Followers of Christ, our outer life lived before the world is characterized by suffering and affliction and hardship and shame and difficulties. And all of these we experience openly before the world. And Jesus warned his disciples in John 16, 33, he said, in the world you will have tribulation. So this is an inescapable reality for us. As we follow Christ, we will experience these things. We will experience this dissolution of the outer man. But in contrast to this dissolution of our outer self, our life in this world, we also experience the reality of the daily renewal of our inner man because of our relationship with Christ. So this goes along with what uh, the pastor was speaking on this morning about uh, the branches in the vine and uh, abiding in Christ. So this inward man, again, uh, by contrast here, it's, uh, it's not simply referring to that immaterial part of our being, the human soul that is uh, not visible outwardly. It's speaking about the inward life of the Christian lived in union with Christ. Um, Colossians 3.3, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, and we experience in this new relationship, this union with Christ, a, a spiritual constant renewal of the inner man. So just as we share in those outward sufferings and humiliations of Christ in the world, we also share in the life-giving power of his resurrection. 
one of the instruments, the tools that God uses, we see up in chapter 3 and verse 18. We see that we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We see this process of transformation which God is performing in our lives through our union with Christ so that we become sharers in his life and we experience this daily spiritual renewal. So the tool that God uses is his word. His agent is the Holy Spirit. And what happens is we experience this renewal of the mind, as Colossians 3.10 talks about. And this experience of spiritual renewal is a daily experience. Notice it says here, that our inward man is renewed day by day. So we can experience, and we do experience, this daily renewal by the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to transform us, so that we are experiencing the life of Christ at work in us. And we have this paradox of dissolution which we're experiencing and at the same time this spiritual renewal and Paul is saying here this is why I don't give up so this spiritual renewal is something that we receive continually from God on a daily uh, daily basis. It is the refreshing and renewal that can make even the deepest sorrows and the hardest trials sweet to us. And they come to us through fresh understanding and application of our position in Christ. I'd like to encourage you. What does it mean when we talk about union with Christ? This is not something we hear talked of very often, but this is a significant and a very practical and important element of our practical theology. We need to understand who we are in Christ and what we receive on a daily basis from Christ in our, in our Christian living. We need to recognize, however, that this experience always comes to us through God's appointed means. We must spend time daily in God's word, prayerfully reading it, receiving it, meditating upon it in dependence upon God's spirit so that we can receive the benefits of the spirit's ministry in our life. So uh, just for instance, John chapter 7, this is what Jesus said uh, um, this was uh, in the temple uh, during the Feast of Dedication. He said, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So the point here is that as we experience this renewing of the inner man, it comes to us through the Spirit of God, applying the Word of God, and we can enjoy this river of living water flowing out of our life. So the first reason we must not lose heart in our Christian life is because the inner man is being renewed. 
Notice the second reason. We see this here in verse 17. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now we see a second contrast here. And here the contrast is that between affliction and glory. Now at first blush, we think about these two concepts of affliction and glory. We might not at first sight think of those two things as what we would call opposites. You know, at one side uh, uh, you have affliction, at the other side you have glory. We might think of affliction and pleasure, or we might think of shame and glory. But Paul is making a point here that these two uh, uh, concepts of affliction and glory are both operative in our lives in the present, but we are waiting and expecting that glory that will come to us in the future. So you should not lose heart because affliction is producing for you glory. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 2 and 3, this is what, uh, uh, how the author put it. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And so here, the author is reminding us that Christ is our example. That as we look to Christ and observe Him counting His afflictions to be joy because of the future glory that He would receive, that this ought to challenge us to imitate by looking to Jesus. So thoughtful believers will recognize that affliction and persecution is a normal condition for Christians who choose to stand for Christ and to serve Christ. Now, it used to be we would talk about persecution being something that was outside of America, something that took place in third world countries or in Muslim nations. And I, those things are continuing to occur. There are still persecutions. Places like mainland China, believers who are suffering for their faith. But the fact is, we see this drawing nearer and nearer to us here in America on a daily basis. Where because of our biblical beliefs and biblical convictions, we are going to be brought into conflict not only with our society, but also with our government. And where we are going to have to endure some things of persecution because of our stand and service to Christ. Paul is here arguing that we must never view affliction in isolation. Now what do we mean by that? Um, it's kind of like when you have a telescope. I can remember when I was a a child, my parents uh, got me a telescope and I would sit on my front porch and there was a road right in front of our house that went for a long ways and I would sit on my porch and I would look all the way down that road 
And the thing that you couldn't see when you're looking way down the road is what's going on right next to you. You got one eye closed, you're looking in that telescope, and your brother comes along behind you and, and slaps you on the back of the head. Well, you never saw that one coming. See, the truth is, we focus on one thing at a time. We look at afflictions, and it does something to our hearts and minds. When we start thinking about the hardships that we're enduring, the afflictions that we're enduring, or the persecutions that we may be facing, as we think about these things, if we do not think about them in comparison to something else, we're going to find ourselves being in trouble. And so what Paul's point here is that we must always think about present affliction in comparison to future glory. That which is coming to us in the future. The glory that God has prepared for us as his children. And that's why James tells us, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. When we learn to view our affliction from this perspective of comparing it, using binoculars, if you will, instead of a telescope, and viewing our afflictions in comparison to future glory, it, this is the thing that will equip us and enable us not to give up, not to lose heart, and enable us to keep on keeping on in the Christian life. So when we learn to view our afflictions from this perspective, we discover two facts. Notice what it says. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. So notice, first of all, in reverse order here, that these afflictions, when we view them in comparison to glory, they're momentary. They're but for a moment. The brevity of our present life in comparison to eternity reminds us that these trials and tribulations that we will face for Christ now are very brief. They will soon be over. And this is a perspective that will help us to endure sufferings. Now, let me just illustrate this. Um, now, I have not jogged regularly for many, many years. In recent years, my wife and I have gotten in the habit of walking. So we try to walk about an hour a day, uh, as many days a week as we can. And we've uh, been pretty consistent over the last few years. Uh, so we're no longer jogging. Uh, in my younger years as a missionary, though, I did jog regularly. And uh, I knew it was good for me. I knew I needed to stay in shape. I, know I, I knew I needed to uh, make sure that my body was uh, at full strength for the challenges that I had to face. And so I would jog regularly. But here's my confession. I hated it. I didn't jog because I liked it. I really did. I did not like jogging. I did it because I knew it was good for me and I knew, I knew that I needed to do it. And this is the trick that I used when I would jog. I would set a time goal. I would say, okay, I'm going to jog. I had my watch on. And I would say, I'm going to jog for this length of time. And as I'm jogging, as your lungs begin to burn and your legs begin to hurt and your feet begin to, to, to hurt, you're thinking, you know, I just want to stop. And you, I would say to myself, it's just a little while longer. 
I can do this for a little while. I know this isn't going to last long. I've got the time marked out. I can endure this for a little while. And it would encourage me to keep going. When we view the trials and afflictions of our present life in comparison with eternal glory that God has prepared for us, it will help us to evaluate our afflictions properly. It will help us to recognize that these are only temporary and brief afflictions. Notice the second thing we learn about affliction when we keep it in its proper perspective. Not only is it momentary, but it's light. It calls it here our light affliction. Trials seem hard to us now. They make us want to quit and give up. But in contrast to the weight of glory that God is preparing for us in heaven and that he's preparing for us, preparing us to receive, in light of those things, we can recognize that these things are light. Now, the word light here is uh, an interesting word because it is a particular word that is unusual in the New Testament. Now, the word light in our English translation occurs many times, but in the original language, the word that is translated light only occurs in two places in Scripture. All right, I'm going to step aside from the pulpit here, so I'm going to invite your input here. I'm, wonder, I'm going to give you a little quiz here, a Bible quiz. Can you tell me where in Scripture does it talk about something that is light that you think might mean the same thing as light means here? And you can speak it out. Any ideas? Okay, you got it. And I quoted that earlier in my introduction. I, I tried to prime the pump for you there. In Matthew 11, when Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the only two places in the New Testament that this word in the original language occurs. The point there is that Christ does have a yoke of discipleship for us to bear that is necessary. But when we compare that with the yoke that we have put off, which is the yoke of sin and eternal punishment that we faced before we came to Christ, Christ invited us to put off that burden and to take His yoke. And Christ tells us, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a necessary burden that we have to carry as Christ's disciples. But this is a light burden in comparison to what an unbeliever will bear. An unbeliever who will go to eternal judgment for their sin. So affliction is, is momentary and light. But then I want you to notice also that affliction produces glory that is eternal and incomparably weighty. It says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. My mom was an English teacher. And so growing up, um, she would drill us on English grammar. So when I was growing up, we could never say ain't. Uh, I obviously did not grow up in the South, pardon me. <clears throat> 
that was considered uh, barbarism. You don't use that type of language because she, uh, she was an English teacher. And so she taught us to um, diagram sentences, to identify all the parts of speech. Now, I want you to just look at this sentence in verse 17 for a moment. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, this is classic Pauline uh, statement. And Paul just loves to pile on all of these uh, descriptive statements that uh, about light and momentary and weighty and exceeding all of these adjectival uh, uh, modifications to qualify his sentence. All right, I'm going over here to the side again, so I'm going to invite your, uh, your input here. Who can tell me what is the kernel of this sentence, verse 17? We talk about a kernel, we're talking about a subject, a verb, and a complement. All right, how many of you English grammarians out there can give me the kernel of verse 17? What's the subject? Okay, the subject is affliction. What's the verb? Works. Okay, what's the complement? Glory. All right, so there you have your kernel. What does this sentence say? It says, affliction works glory. Well, what does that mean? Do afflictions really work? Doesn't this sound like another familiar passage of Scripture in our, in our, our Bible that appears in the book of Romans, and I think it's in chapter 12, and even in chapter 12 and verse 8? What does it say? We know that all things work together for good. Now, we know things don't work. God works. God works. That's not chapter 12, verse 8. What is it? Chapter 12, verse 30, 18. Okay, I'm all confused here. All things work together for good. The fact is that God is working through our afflictions to give us and bring us to glory. So here is the, the point of what Paul is saying, that as we experience these afflictions, God is actually doing something for us and in us that will equip us in the future to experience glory. Affliction is working for us Glory. Let me just give you a literal translation of this verse. Uh, this is my paraphrase, uh, so please forgive me. It was, this verse would sound something like this. For the momentary lightness of our affliction is producing for us in superlative measure to a superlative degree an eternal weight of glory. So the, the fact here is the glory we expect to receive is something that is incomparably great. Now, <clears throat> again, what is this glory? We often think of glory, and we have a very nebulous idea of what that's talking about. And we think of, always think about something that God is going to give us, some reward, some mansion, some uh, praise, or something that he's going to give us in eternity that will give us glory. And that is a total misunderstanding of what it is that God is preparing to give to us. Because glory in the Bible is never our glory, it's always His glory. And what He is doing is He is preparing to allow us to become sharers in His glory. And think about how incomparably great and weighty that is. That God is giving us 
His glory. And I'd like to suggest to you that when God gives us His glory, He's not giving us something apart from Himself. He's giving us Himself. As it says in Revelation, God Himself will be with His people. He said, I will be their God and they will be my people. So we should not lose heart because we're experiencing daily renewal in the inner man. We should not give up because affliction in the present is working for us eternal glory. But then thirdly, we see that we must not lose heart because we see the invisible. And again, this is a paradox. We have this paradox between the seen and the unseen. And this paradox helps us to understand that there is a spiritual engine that drives our confidence and our endurance as Christians. And we need to recognize that this phrase, to see the invisible, is a paradox. If it's invisible, you can't see it. If you can see it, it's not invisible. What does Paul mean when he says we can see that which is unseen? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that faith is the instrument that enables us to see the invisible. When he says here, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, Paul is describing, and if you'll forgive the illusion, that we as Christians have a superpower. Kind of like Superman with his x-ray vision that enables him to see things that nobody else could see. And as Christians, we have the ability to see that which is invisible, that which is unseen. What are these invisible things that we as Christians can see? Let me just begin by saying there are two possibilities that we can consider. First of all, Paul here could be talking about faith in the invisible uh, spiritual realities. What do I mean by that? Well, um, the Bible says God is a spirit. No man has seen God at any time. As believers, we have come to faith in God. We believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We can think here also about uh, invisible realities like heaven. Uh, unless you're the Apostle Paul or uh, the Apostle John who got caught up into the third heaven and saw the visions of God, we've never seen heaven. Heaven is something that is a spiritual reality. It is a real place, but we've never seen it. We believe it. Paul could be talking here about these types of spiritual realities, that it is this uh, ability by faith to believe and see these uh, spiritual realities that motivates us. But let me suggest that there is a deeper uh, uh, theology that Paul is addressing here. Uh, and certainly those things are true. As Christians, we do see those spiritual realities. But that's not all that Paul is trying to say. Turn with me for a moment, if you would, to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Very familiar uh, portion of Scripture. Notice it says, verse 1, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so here we see that faith is the instrument that enables us to see the invisible, 
But what are these invisible things? Well, he goes on down in verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Move on down. Look down at verse 7. And here's where I really want you to pay attention. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he... Uh, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And then skip down again to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now here is what I believe Paul is talking about when he says we see the things that are not seen. He's talking about things that, uh, that are involved in the invisible word of God. And by that I'm talking primarily about God's promises to us for the future. Just as God spoke to Noah and warned him about a flood that was coming, and Noah had never seen a flood, but Noah believed God's word that there was a flood coming, and so by faith he prepared an ark. And it was Noah's faith in the invisible, that which he could not see, but which God had said was going to come, it was that faith that enabled him to be saved. So when Paul here is talking about things that are not seen, he's talking about things that are not seen because they have not yet occurred, but God has promised them to us in his word. And so these things relate to future things declared by God in his word. For instance, God has promised to give his children a glorified, resurrected body like Christ. He's promised to give us an eternal inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. He's promised to honor us by making us rulers together with Christ. And these are things which we've not seen. But because God has promised these things in His Word, we can see them by faith and they motivate us to keep on keeping on. This ability to see the unseen can be illustrated by a powerful electron microscope. Have you ever seen an image created by, a micron, uh, by an electron microscope? Uh, maybe it's uh, like a, a dust mite, something so small you can't even see it with the human eye, and they magnify it up in this big black and white, clear, sharp photograph. And you say, how in the world did they get that photograph? Well, up until the 1950s, the most powerful microscopes were optical microscopes. Optical microscopes use light that passes through optical lenses. And these optical microscopes can only magnify to a maximum of about 2,000 times. And this is the physical limit, the limitation of optical microscopes. Now, 2,000 times is, is good magnification. It's sufficient to see and view the tiny structures within the living, within the living cell. And the limitation of optical microscopes is because of the uh, physical fact that light has a relatively long wavelength. Now, you understand uh, 
uh, from your high school physics that nobody understands light. They, they can't tell you what it is. It's either a photon or it's a wave. And it's both. They don't know which or both. But as a wave, light functions with a relatively long wavelength. And what that long wavelength means is that it limits the ability to resolve fine detail beyond about 2,000 times because of the light, because of the, the, the length of that wave. But in the 1950s, scientists began to explore and develop microscopes that used streams of electrons instead of light. Now, electrons have a very small wavelength, and they allow magnification up to about 50 million times. Now, just to put that figure into perspective, if we were to take the point of a pen, I'm talking about you know, a sharp pen like a needle. If we were to take the point of a pen and magnify it 50 million times, it would be a circle about eight miles in diameter. And that is the difference between an optical microscope and an electron microscope. And that ability to magnify what is exceedingly small makes these, optic, or the, these electron microscopes, uh, uh, gives them the ability to show us things that otherwise would be entirely invisible to our human eyesight. These allow scientists to see things that are so small that for all practical purposes, they are invisible. So the future realities that God has promised to us are still future. They're invisible because they've not yet come to pass. We believe them by faith and live in the present in light of these invisible realities. But we need to go a step farther. Faith is the instrument that allows us to see the invisible. But notice also that faith is the instrument that anchors our present lives in the world to come. So he goes on here in verse 18 by saying, for the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, the things which are temporary, these are the elements of the physical world in which we live. Everything that we can see, that we can touch, that we can taste, that we can smell, or that we can feel, all of these things will one day disappear. They're part of this present world system that is in the process of passing away. Our cars wear out. Our buildings decay. Kingdoms and nations rise and fall. But the things which are not seen are eternal. God has promised to his people a kingdom which cannot be moved. Because we cannot now see this promised glorious kingdom, we must exercise faith to live and act in light of that promised kingdom. So it's our faith in the word and promise of God that is the anchor which connects us in the here and now with that future heavenly kingdom. Maybe at some time you've been to a, a maritime museum and out in front you've seen one of the huge ocean anchors. Massive steel anchors that are used for these uh, super tankers and other giant ocean-going vessels. And these anchors are important because they allow the ship to uh, have a fixed point of reference 
in the sea. They can put that anchor down and keep themselves from being driven by wind and wave where they might be in danger of going on the reef or going on the rocks and being destroyed. So these anchors uh, are only effective because there's a cable that firmly connects the anchor, which is out of sight beneath the water with the ship. So if they just took that anchor and threw it overboard, it wouldn't do any good. It's because there is a cable that attaches that anchor at the bottom of the ocean where you cannot see it with the ship that is above the water facing the wind and storm and wave that it is, uh, it is kept safe and secure because of that cable that connects it to the anchor. And our faith is like that ship's anchor cable. Seeing the invisible firmly connects our life in the visible world here and now with that invisible future kingdom which God has promised to us. And this is why we don't give up. This is why we don't lose heart. This is why we don't allow discouragement to drive us to despair. Because our inward man is being renewed. Because uh, affliction is working in our lives to produce glory. And because we can see the invisible. These are all part and parcel with the gospel that God has called us to proclaim. It's not enough that we proclaim the gospel to others. We must accept the gospel for ourselves. Yes, we need to trust Christ by faith for salvation. But after we have trusted Christ by faith for salvation, we need to allow the truths of the gospel to continually work themselves into the fabric of our lives. These are the tools that God uses to give us uh, uh, stick to and fortitude and courage as we face opposition and difficulty in the world. And so we can look at this example from the life of Paul and we can also say we don't faint. We don't give up. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have given us a gospel that nourishes our faith, nourishes our soul, that carries us uh, through this uh, present world of stormy temptation and trial and difficulty to a safe haven in our eternal home. And we pray that you would give us grace, that we would spend time allowing your spirit to apply the truths of your word in our hearts so that our inward man is renewed. We pray you would strengthen us through the present trials and afflictions that we face. Help us to keep a proper perspective on these afflictions, to view them in comparison with the glory you've prepared for us in eternity. And we ask that you would help us to exercise our faith by seeing the invisible, by holding fast to the promises that you've given to us of the future uh, uh, blessings and glory that awaits for us in that future kingdom. 
And we pray that you would help us as we pass through this world, that we would be faithful in following you on a daily basis, but also in serving you by giving the gospel to others, by uh, uh, preaching uh, as Noah, who preached to his generation, as Paul, who preached to his generation, that we in our generation would also give your gospel of salvation in Christ to those around us, and that we would be faithful and keep on keeping on as we do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.